You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Kidnet Television proudly presents America's favorite kid show host, Rainbow Randall. So you'll make sure my boy dances up front, right? Gets to sit in the chair. You want your little booger eater on my show? Meet Randolph Smiley. He once was rich. He once was famous. And he once was sane. Rainbow Randolph is the man. Yes, oh, yes, he is. They kicked me out of the corporate penthouse. I'm homeless. I can assure you, this network cannot survive another Rainbow Randolph. Don't touch me! Please, God, Salmonella! Sir, it is my personal mission to find a satisfactory replacement. Get me smoochy. You're telling me that Kidnet is finally ready to pursue a show of smoochy caliber. My body was barely cold and you went to work for the rhino. I gotta eat, don't I? The only way to take back his career is to take down his replacement. In this jungle. Going on safari. Safari. Hunting season. What's this? Trust me, Sheldon. It's a handy accessory to have in this business. Never ends. Carry my back now and forever. What's up? Robin Williams, Edward Norton, Danny DeVito, Catherine Keener. What does it all mean? Death to Smoochie. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course... Mr. Mike White. You just fucked with the wrong rhino. And joining us this week, our good friend who's never been banned from the booth, Mr. Mike Sullivan. Hey, guys, I'm really glad you lifted the ban. Uh, I told my parents about it, and they're very proud of me, so thank you. Thank you for doing that. No problem. It is the holiday season, after all. This week, we're talking about the 2002 film from director Danny DeVito, Death to Smoochie. It's a satirical look at the world of kids' shows and the battle between a long-established favorite, Rainbow Randolph, played by the recently departed Robin Williams, and his up-and-coming competitor, Smoochie the Rhino, played by Edward Norton. When Randolph falls from grace, he plans to kill Smoochie. Written by Adam Resnick, who you heard on our Cabin Boy episode, Death to Smoochie is a satire about media, kids, TV, culture, and food, of all things. So as our guest, Mr. Sullivan, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? Oh, man, I'll tell you. I actually saw this when it came out. I saw this, I think it was was around Easter of 2002. I saw it in theaters, and it wasn't, as you can probably imagine, it wasn't a packed theater. And I, I just I fell in love with the movie right away. I mean, it was it was very dark. It was very cynical. It was uh, very weird. And uh, it, you know, it, it I actually earlier that year I saw a movie that it reminded me of that I, another movie I love called Dying of Laughter. That's part of the reason why I loved it because it reminded me so much of that uh, uh, Glacia film. And in fact, I loved the movie so much that like I ran out of the theater. I ran out of the theater. And I, I went trying to buy the soundtrack, which wasn't out at the time. And also, I, I, I looked up the credits of the movie, and I found Resnick wrote it, Adam Resnick. And then I realized that you know he wrote and was responsible for a lot of things I loved. And this was the first time I found out you know uh, about Adam Resnick. So I mean, this this movie was uh, it was a gift. I mean, I, I just love it. And I, I loved it to this day. You know, it's one of my favorite movies, actually. 
I remember when this movie came out, I didn't go see it at the theater, and I just remember how critically lambasted it was, and it was kind of like the punchline to a lot of jokes, like, well, your movie could have been death to Smoochie, but thank goodness it wasn't, and it took me a long time before I finally sat down and watched it, and something told me that it wasn't going to be nearly as bad as people made it out to be, even though it had Robin Williams, and Robin Williams, he's been in some really bad movies, like really bad movies, but something told me that this wasn't going to be one of them, and when I finally sat down and watched it, probably like, I don't know, a year ago, maybe a little bit more, really liked it. And every time I watch it, I get a little bit more out of it, so I am on the smoochy train. Well, like Mr. Sullivan, I also saw it in the theater. I saw it in the theater with my then-girlfriend, and we're still friends, and we still make references to Death to Smoochie. And it's, um, it, it, I agree with you. It's one of those films that's very dark and weird, uh, cynical. I, I think it owes a lot, uh, looking back on our episode the week before, in terms of it's in that wheelhouse with, like, idiocracy. And I think in one way, when you talk about sort of satire and cynicism, the, the co-starring role in here uh, of Ed Norton, because it really is sort of the twin towers of uh, Robin Williams and Ed Norton that really carry the film. I thought in some ways that in terms of satire, it, it goes back to like Fight Club. I, I got stuff with like that, like the idea of satire and, and darkness that's in here. But they're talking about kids stuff. And I just love the idea that the world of uh, kitty television is not as neat and clean as you may think it is. Yeah, I love this kind of alternative universe that they're living in where it's just like how cutthroat and i'm sure that a lot of it is actually true as far as how cutthroat children's television is but then the whole idea of like the charities being basically like little mafia type gangs and everything and so i i really like that it just goes all the way with everything it's just completely normal that children's television makes these huge splash headlines that people are talking about it on like cnn and everything there's no pulling any punches as far as once you get into this world everything is geared towards it one thing i wanted to put out right now just to let folks know is that we will be getting into spoilers on this episode so if you haven't seen death to smoochie yet you can turn us off go check it out come back because of course the podcast will be waiting for you one thing i want to say is that uh I love the idea that the, the charity is the bad guy in this film. I like the fact that the mafia is the good guys. I mean, they're they're, the, they're like the one of the few positive characters in the film. And it, there's like it's 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 a twisted worldview uh, of the movie that really grabbed me at the time. And I, what surprised me is the amount of critics that just didn't get this movie. Like Ebert's review is just it's a complete mess. He, he refers to like. Uh, Smoochie and Randolph as clowns. He gets a lot of the details of the movie wrong. Another problem I think a lot of critics had with this movie and they didn't get was they kept thinking it was like a Barney the Dinosaur parody when it clearly isn't. If it was a parody, why or like a parody of Barney the Dinosaur, why would Smoochie be the good guy in the film? He's like uh, one of the few positive elements in the film, and it doesn't really take that character to task. Going back at the time, it, it was uh, it was a thing like it was always the same sort of like sad beats with this, where they would just like beat it for being a Barney parody when it clearly was never a Barney parody. Yeah, and that's what I was afraid of when I first saw the maybe the trailer or the poster or something. I was just like, oh man, because I'm you know by this time Barney had been on the air for what ten years or something, and just he was just 
terrible. You know, just the few times that I had seen Barney just kind of channel flipping and stuff. I was like, oh god, this is just so inane. I mean, I'm I know that it was aimed for an, a younger audience than Sesame Street, and I guess maybe maybe there were shows that were aimed at that age group when I was a kid. Maybe Mr. Rogers, possibly, or Kukla Fran, Fran and Ollie, that kind of stuff. But I just did not. I guess really, like maybe like Romper Room might have been kind of that demographic that Barney was going for. And I just didn't see Romper Room being as pandering and just, I don't know, just syrupy and everything. So I definitely think that people got the wrong idea when they started to play up a foam rubber rhino versus a foam rubber dinosaur. But you're right. If they had watched the film and actually paid attention, they would have realized, no, this is not Barney. This is a whole other thing that exists in its own universe. So I don't know what could have made them kind of come around and see the light, but it was just, it felt like people judged this film before it ever even really unspooled on the screen. Why don't we use that as a great jumping off point to kind of get into the plot so that we can get into sort of what happens and the characters and things like that. So the film opens with this scene where you hear the, uh, the Smoochie's Magic Jungle song and there's all of this and you see someone in silhouette getting killed and then it says six months earlier. And we open up with Rainbow Randolph in his show and his song Friends Come in All Sizes, which is Robin Williams doing song and dance numbers. Now, this would have been for me, I think, right after you remember the Oscars where Robin Williams did the South Park song and did the whole song and dance number because it was nominated the Blame Canada was nominated in uh, for the Oscars of the uh, in 2000, and I think that may have helped to set him up as the idea that he could kind of pull off song and dance numbers, at least in my mind. And to have him in here with this opening for his show, and he's got this sort of, I guess, maybe like leprechaun-esque kind of um, character. I mean, how do you uh, d- how do you describe Rainbow Randolph? Uh, the TV personality versus the personality we meet after his fall from grace. You know, I know this really isn't the the right time to say this because it's still too soon. So I'm going to just sort of maybe just do this very gently. But Robin Williams is is not one of my favorite parts of the movie, and I, I love this movie a lot. But I I know a lot of people say that this he was going dark. You know, he was going different. And it, to me, it really wasn't any different than anything else he was doing, you know, before then and, and in the future. I, he's really, really obnoxious in the movie, and he's, you know, doing his riffs, and it just, it just, it, 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 it bothered me then, and it bothers me now. And, and when I was reading the original script, I, I had a feeling that maybe, and this is just conjecture on my part, I'm thinking possibly that Resnick had Chris Elliott in mind for the character because. Rainbow Randolph says things like peasant, and it just sounds like more appropriate coming out of Chris Elliott's mouth. And I just, Williams just, I mean, he's done, I mean, he just needs the right director. He needs someone to sit him down and say, look, look, just keep the rips to a minimum. You know, just, we just need you to do this. We just need you to go straight. We can't have you like improvising like every other line, you know? And he didn't get that. There was no restraint there. There was subtlety was out the window. And I just, it's, that's the one it's one of a few things I, that annoy me about the movie, but it's a movie I still love. I think that his performance is broad. 
but I have to say that he does stay on script most of the time. It, he doesn't get that opportunity to riff that much, at least from what I was seeing reading the script and everything. He's definitely not doing like an Aladdin or a Mrs. Doubtfire or something where they're just they're paying for Robin Williams to come in and riff for an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it takes. This felt like he was more on script, at least with Resnick, though his performance was fairly broad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know what, you're right, because I, I read the script the other night, and he, there was, the riffing was kept him out, but I, the riffing still stood out to me, you know, because I know he, at one point he's like, ah, someone grabbed my ass, and that's like so distinctly Robin Williams, you know, and it just, that to me just sticks out like a sore, sore thumb. I actually really like him in here. I think that his turn between being this sort of saccharine, sweet, over-the-top kids character that we see in that first scene, and then he goes and gets the payoff from the people so that their kid can be up front on the show. You see this darkness to his character where it's like, yeah, I'm all smiles and stuff on TV, but I'm really bad. But the, the thing that I, I can agree with you, there is some of that riffing in there, but I thought overall he does a really nice job in here. And also I thought in terms of him getting dark, I think this is the beginning of that darkness that we see in other things such as, you know, and, and it's much more serious of a drama like One Hour Photo or even um, like uh, World's Greatest Dad, the Bobcat Goldthwait film, where it's it's a satire and it's a comedy. But he kind of rides that line and doesn't fall off into a lot of that Robin Williams riffing in the Bobcat Goldthwait film. That's why I like uh, World's Greatest Dad, because I, I think Bob Goldthwait is the, the one director that knows how to work with him. Because like Williams's cameo and uh, Shakes the Clown is really, really funny. And World's Greatest Dad, I mean, he's very measured. He's very funny in it. And it's still he's giving like like a dark sort of hangdog performance. And I, I love him in that. I think he's fantastic in that. But in Smoochie, he just, he just doesn't, he's just going too, he's going too broad. And I think Danny DeVito just kept, you know, encouraging that. And that's, that's like I said, that's one of the problems I have with the movie. It's kind of interesting that 2002, Williams was in three films insomnia death to smoochie and one hour photo this was really that beginning period of his his dark time and stuff i know that he had done more serious roles here and there beforehand i would consider something like um you know fisher king to be more serious of course you know goodwill hunting and everything but he had gone through a really bad period between like goodwill hunting and i'm sorry i like um what dreams may come quite a bit but like you know he was doing patch adams and jake of the liar and bicentennial man in here and i know that that was fairly typical for his career to have these ups and downs and everything and to be able to knock something out of the park in one movie and then completely flounder for like three or four films after that so it was very rare for him to have any kind of consistency in his work but i think 2002 was was pretty darn good year for him to have those three films and to be seen as kind of more of a villain because he is one of the villains of the piece though he's really the the person with one of the as you were saying rob he's he's one of the two arcs in here because we have him going from what he is at the beginning of the film to what he's at the end and though sheldon doesn't change a whole lot he definitely makes some strives and becomes a, a, a little bit better, a little bit more rounded uh, person but by the end of the film. One, one thing I noticed uh, in the movie that wasn't in the script was, um, in the script, like, Sheldon is, he's just, he's like, a, he's a caricature, but in the movie, he's a little bit deeper. There's a scene where, uh, that alludes he had, like, anger issues in the past, 
And I, 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 I like it. I thought maybe, like, when I finally got a chance to read the script, I thought maybe it was going to delve more into that area, but it didn't. You know, he, he's actually kind of, uh, kind of like, a, like a straight line in the original script. So speaking of which, what happens is once Rainbow Randolph has his fall from grace and is caught taking basically, I guess, the equivalent of payola to put people's kids somewhere in close up front uh, for TV, uh, the executives at Kidnet, which is the television network, I guess, maybe a Nickelodeon type thing where they have all these kid shows has decided that they need to get someone who has really strong ethics, that they had known about these payoffs. As a matter of fact, um, a role by John Stewart in here, which is nice to see. I totally forgot he was in this because I hadn't seen it in so long, is sort of the uh, I, the producer for the show. And he goes, yes, you know, we need to get ethics because we can't have this again. You know, we know that he had been, you know, not a very nice person and, and all of this stuff. And we got to get someone who's squeaky clean. So they go out and basically get the exact opposite, who is Sheldon Mopes, played by Edward Norton. And he's, you know, eats organic and gluten-free, and he's a vegetarian, and he's, you know, like, it's very, like, this is very serious for him. You know, I'm not using Smoochie the Rhino to sell products, and if we have to do that, then they're going to be, you know, good things for kids. And, and it's very much about the message and making sure that you're sending the positive message to kids, which, of course, we know children's television ever since we were kids has been nothing but selling kids sugar cereal and toys. And I love the little scene between John Stewart and really, for me, one of the, the stars that kind of goes untalked about too much, Catherine Keener. She is amazing in this as Nora Wells and their whole little discussion about all these different hosts that they could get for the show and how each one of them has a really bad problem, very dark. Buggy Ding Dong. Erwin Mule. Oh, Square Dance Danny. And his wife beater. Princess Puppy. I'll bust my balls. Sorry. Skippy Black and the Tippy Trolls. Oh, you know, Black was deported. And the trolls, well, who gives a shit? I guess really, Mike, you bringing up Shakes the Clown does kind of ring very true when it comes to this as far as like this whole idea of clowns being happy, but instead we have this whole like almost like organized crime or organized, uh, you know, gangs of clowns when it came to that film. So I can see this being kind of a good double feature with that. I love how it's, how scummy it is. I just love the scumminess of the film. I love when Vincent Chiavelli, they introduced his character. He was like a former kids show host and he's now this like homeless heroin addict. He had a line, I, I, I'm going to butcher here, but I love, and he, he goes, um, Hey, I'm sorry I'm late, man. I fell asleep at the bus station. Looking good, Buggy. Yeah. Excuse me if I smell like piss. You know how it is. There's like such like an unrestrained scumminess to the film that I love. And there's also like a, a sweetness, you know, and that's, that I like the meshing of the two. And that's why this film still works for me. Yeah, Ed Norton, his character of Sheldon Mopes, could be one of the most annoying characters ever written if they played it the wrong way. And to your point, Mike, I think they really played it the right way. I think that Norton brought this kind of vulnerability with a little bit of darkness to him and everything. So I think that having him in here as this character and, 
you know, like Rob was saying, just how sincere he is and just how he's trying to change the world. And he'll talk to anybody and try to, you know, make a big difference. I mean, even to the point where, you know, the guys at Nathan's are grilling up soy dogs for him and he's talking to, you know, them about how they need to do this more often and how it's good for people. And, oh my gosh, just, he, he really could have been the worst, but fortunately, the, he was able to kind of leap that little uh, that little hill as far as uh, being so annoying to actually being kind of lovable. Do you think he's doing a Woody Harrelson impression? But I meant Woody Harrelson. Uh, okay, okay, all right. Listen, bro. I may have lost a lot of brain cells over the years from my love of a toke, but uh, I'm pretty confident that I can handle your curveball, Baldwin. <laughs> I can't remember if I heard that or if I imagined that, but I heard somewhere that he was making fun of Woody Harrelson. His like character's kind of like a like a bit of like a ribbing on Woody Harrelson. I could kind of see that. I mean, especially yeah. in that era when Woody was all like, you know, you should buy everything made out of hemp and all of this, and he was like Mister Organic, and you know, I don't eat any processed foods and all of this, and he would go on TV and kind of like Trump uh, organics and 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 natural uh, lifestyle, kind of like. 10 years or so before everybody was like, you got to get off the gluten. I'm very curious about Woody Harrelson since like marijuana has been legalized and stuff is hemp now like more legal. I mean, it used to be always the thing of like hash bash would be like, Oh man, pot is, is illegal and hemp is so great, man. You know, George Washington, he grew hemp, you know, this is, this is where it's at. Like has that, day come where like we can start growing hemp again and it will just completely revolutionize our, our economics and how the world works george tote weed man. absolutely george tote weed are you kidding me man he grew fields of that stuff yeah. man that's what i'm talking yeah. about fields he, he grew that shit up in mount vernon man mount vernon man he grew it all over the country man he had people growing it all over the country you know the whole country back then was getting hot let me tell you man because 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 he knew he was on to something, man. He knew that it would be a good cash crop for the southern states, man. And so he grew fields of it, man. But you know what? Behind every good man, there's a woman. And that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big fat bowl waiting for him, man, when he'd come in the door, man. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady, man. After he gets hired by KidsNet, they find him. Catherine Keener, like I said, I this totally underrated in here. I think she does an amazing job. And there was this in I this was part of that period where Catherine Keener was showing up all over the place. I mean, a few years earlier it was, you know, being John Malkovich and of course a couple of years before that and living in oblivion. And then um you know, she just had a really good run in here, uh, between the late nineties and the early two thousands. And I, I hate to say I, I maybe she's gone on to TV. I don't know. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I haven't seen her a lot recently. But the um, he gets hired to take over that time slot that Rainbow Randolph had. And this is where the first part of the sabotage happens because we find out that Randolph is now living on the streets. He's homeless and has decided to actually, um, I guess, impose himself on one of his former um, co-stars on the show, one of the uh, singers and dancers. The Crinkle Kids. Yeah, played by Danny Woodburn. And uh, basically barges into his apartment and uh, sets himself up living on his couch and then continues to try and like plot ways to uh, bring down the new guy. Because, of course, if he can bring down the new guy, then he thinks, well, I can have my old time slot back because if I make this guy look worse than me, 
or if I get rid of them, then of course they'd love to have me back. So uh, the the first part of this um, sabotage is to have cookies, and uh, of course the cookies are going to look a, a certain way that maybe um, would be a little embarrassing. It's a cock. It's not what? a rocket, you sick fuck. This? It's a cock. Randolph, look, get this guy out of here. cock and balls. The right dick. Now. Also, the other thing with uh, Keener's character in here is that she happens to be a uh, a groupie for uh, kid show hosts. Which they exposed at just the right time, I think. I really like this whole hatred that she has for Sheldon, like throughout so much of the film. And I think that comes through a little bit more in the script, but she plays it the right way when it comes to the actual film. Just this kind of simmering low boil of hatred that she has and just constantly undercutting him. Though I think the best scene is when she throws the Frisbee out of the room, he goes out and they slam and lock the door after him. Cause it's just like, she wants nothing to do with him and his cheery worldview. One of the things that I love about him and his worldview, and it's explained in one simple line where he says, he's talking, I believe to Keener and they're saying, you know, when I was a kid, my brother and I would play, and, and kids in the neighborhood would play cowboys and Indians. I would play the Chinese railroad worker. Just like the idea that you're not even on the map. You're like over there. You know, you're like, you're not willing to be a cowboy or an Indian. You want to be some, you want to be this person who's being, you know, knuckled under even worse in the community. I like the way she played it, where it's like just this very thinly veiled contempt, where like she's, she hates him so much. In those early scenes, she's nearly shaking. You know, I, I, I always like that, like, just this, like, you know, this pure hatred she had for, like, mopes. I, I, it, it really is an amazing performance. So I'm surprised how quickly Sheldon kind of uh, recovers when he gets those uh, penis-shaped cookies, uh, the rocket ship. And this is one of the first humiliations, um, well, new humiliations that we have for Rainbow Randolph. And I kind of like that he becomes kind of the film's punching bag for quite a while. This kind of fulfills a lot of fantasies that I have about kind of punishing Robin Williams. So I was... Glad to see him constantly being beaten up or walking into walls or just kind of uh, having the rug pulled out from under him over and over again. You're a mean man. I am a very mean man. I, When Robin Williams passed away or killed himself, there are a lot of people who are just like, oh my God, you know, he was in so many great movies. And I'm like, yes, yes, he was in great movies, but you have to remember all of the bad ones too. You are not allowed to forget being human or bicentennial man or you know there's the list is much longer than the list of actually tolerable to good to great films that he was in around this point is where he's starting as you were said they the um the charities come forward and i love the parade of hope which is the the big charity that's always done these like, you know, on ice things and they want a smoochie on ice. He doesn't want to do it. And the gangster, I, this is inspired casting again, uh, Harvey Firestein as sort of the head gangster for the charity. Uh, well cast Harvey Firestein. I think he's really great in role. And I think he's good in like the Vito's film he did after that uh, uh, duplex where he plays like the crooked um, real estate agent. I, I, I like him in those Dane DeVito movies. I have to say that I read a different version of the script before I talked to Adam Resnick a few months ago, and 
I screwed up when I was reading it, and for some reason I read Merv Griffith as rather than Merv Green, his character name. And I was just loving it, like thinking of Merv Griffith. Because, I I mean, we've all seen Merv Griffith play a psycho killer before, you know, in The Man with Two Brains. And I'm just like, oh, man, this is great, Merv Griffith. Oh, yeah. And then I read the, the version that Resnick sent over. And wouldn't you know, I did the exact same thing. I read Merv Griffith again, and I still kept thinking that it was Merv Griffith. Then finally, like, I don't know how many pages into it, I'm like, no, it's not Merv Griffith. This is Merv Green. Okay. If I think, like, they referred to him by name for, like, a second time, and I was like, ah, oh. Harvey Firestein, absolutely great. Kept thinking Merv Griffith the whole time. Did the exact same thing, Mike. For like the first like few pages of when his character came, I thought his original name was Merv Griffin. All right, I'm glad I'm not the only one. So then the next setup happens in which Rainbow Randolph calls up Sheldon and says, "We would like you to come and play for the kids, and we've got an award we want to give you, and we'll come pick you up." And kind of does a, um, I guess, a version of the Mrs. Doubtfire voice, except it's a male version of uh, a Scottish brogue picks him up and uh, takes him to this sort of nondescript uh, building out in the middle of New Jersey, which happens to end up being a, a, a place where um, Smoochie's downfall happens. Yeah, I was reminded a lot of Mother Night at this point. Welcome to Nuremberg, Smoochie. Did you ever see Dying of Laughter? I don't think I have. No. Okay. Because this is, this is the part that really reminded me of like Dying of Laughter, because in that movie... It's about uh, this comedy team and like their partnership sours. And at a certain point, they start playing playing pranks on each other, and the plank the pranks start getting crueler and crueler. And like this scene here, where you know he he takes them to the uh, to the white power rally, and reminded me so much of dying of laughter. You know, it because it, it, it had that sort of level of like uh, like silly cruelty to it, and. Um, Again, this is just one of the many things I liked about the movie. It's just very mean. It's very weird. Somewhere along here, we got introduced to yet another character. This movie is not short on characters and good roles. We got introduced to um, Spinner Dunn, who is played by Michael Rispoli. Um, Spinner had taken too many hits to the head when he was a professional boxer, and now he's just kind of like this figurehead for like a bar, and um, which is uh, a front for the Irish mafia. And is Spinner is he related to the mobsters, or is he just kind of like their mascot? I got the feeling that he was the son of the woman who seems to be the head gangster, but I don't know if that's true or not. Which I was very glad to see a female gangster as the head of the the clan. Oh, I like that too. That was a nice touch. Yeah, I, I you know, not, the thing was, now that you mention that, I, I always thought he was like he was like her spinner was uh, her son, Tommy's son. But now I don't know. I, I think maybe they were just associated with him when he was a boxer. I don't know. Maybe you know he was the money maker for them or something, but. Yeah. yeah, I like this relationship, and I like that the family, the gangster family, because that's what they seem like to me also, is they seem much more like a, I guess like a clan, like a family here, and that they are always looking out for him, and that, um, you know, they'll maybe flex their muscle a little bit as far as, uh, you know, wanting to uh, help him out. But yeah, I, I appreciated that they were always trying to do best by spinner and uh spinner who's got the mentality of like i don't know a five-year-old or something 
Um, so he plays perfectly into this, you know, children's television kind of thing. And he is just a huge, huge smooshy fan. And he gets to play yeah. uh, the cowbell. And in this case, there's too much cowbell. But this is all before the, the Nazi rally. And then when the Nazi rally happens, the show gets canceled. Smoochie is seen as, a, you know, a, a sympathizer and an anti-Semite because of the uh, the photos that are taken of him. And this is the first part that I think that we get of uh, Sheldon's sort of change in that he um, I, it, it didn't have to be said. It was just all based on what he was doing. And what it is is that you see him eating a hamburger. And when I saw that, I go, ah, OK, so like if someone would. A different person would lose their job. They'd go out drinking or something. He goes and eats like a McDonald's hamburger, and that's sort of his little man life sucks. I am so pumped up on processed foods right now, I think he says at one point. Yeah, yeah. And you also get a little bit of a change, too, because we've had a little bit of a reconciliation between Nora and Smoochie. Not a whole lot at this point, a little bit here. Um, She's gotten really drunk and has apologized to him for being kind of a jerk to him and everything. And they've bonded over a former television host that they were both very into. And later on in the film, we get a... um, Randolph comes in and looks in her refrigerator and he's uh, just makes an offhanded comment about how there's no meat in the refrigerator that she's gone vegetarian. So, you know, that she has given her heart over to Sheldon or at least to his politics. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, this is the, the dark period of Smoochie and Rainbow Randolph thinks that he's back on the ascent. And I think this is actually where he visits uh, Nora and he does a little song and dance out on the street and everything. So he's uh, definitely beside himself that the rhino has been taken down. Well, it eventually becomes known that this was all a setup, that Rainbow Randolph set him up and therefore yeah. it's they give him his show back. And when they give him his show back, Spinner comes back as his sort of dim-witted cousin, Rhino, Moochie. And this is the sort of, I guess, the, the, the front end of the film where there's now a actual mob hit that's been put out on him because he won't play ball with the Parade of Hope folks. Harvey Firestein and his crew, they will not play ball in terms of the on-ice thing that they want him to do. So he has Hitman sent over to kill him, and they end up killing the wrong person. They end up killing Moochie, the purple dino, the purple rhino, instead of Smoochie, the pink rhino. Smoochie is fuchsia. Moochie is burgundy. Read a paper. So then as things progress, he gets a show back. He decides that he's going to do the on-ice pageant, but he's going to do it his way. And he's going to raise money for the methadone clinic that is being shut down on Coney Island that he was we, when we first meet Sheldon Mopes and he's playing for the, uh, the methadone addicts. And I love his song to the, uh, the heroin addicts. Oh, we'll get you off that snackle. Yes, we will. Oh, we'll get you off that snackle. Yes, we will. Oh, we're gonna get you off that smack We'll kick that monkey right off your back And get your life on track Oh, yes, we will It's important to get started now, though You know why? 
Because the snack can lead to crack, oh yes it can Carl, you know what I'm talking about, brother Sing it with me now Giving up that smack, oh yes we are There are so many really great songs in here I mean, I think that one and especially the uh, the your stepdad's just adjusting song, I think is probably one of the best hits. Oh yeah. Which the thing I wonder is were these in the script or who wrote these songs and were they placed afterwards? They were in the script. Resnick wrote them. Yeah. At least all the lyrics, which is good. You know, it's, I, I always wonder when they have songs in film that are, you know, written specifically for the film, kind of like who does that. And, and obviously, uh, Mr. Adam Resnick has the ability to do that. <laughs> so it's good. So then as things progress, then they try to take another shot at him this time, and that is with, as you brought up, uh, Vincent Civelli, who um, is this, as you said, this homeless heroin addict, former kid show host, who is going to go up in the rafters of the, the ice arena where he's doing this whole, you know, smoochie on ice. And the thing that's funny about the smoochie on ice uh, presentation is that it's a recap, basically, of the entire film to that point. Yeah, all told in a very operatic style, which I really enjoy. This is the one thing that I like and kind of dislike about this movie. Where, in it, with the ice, uh, the ice capades type scene, it makes sense. You know, where everything's heightened and it's operatic, and it makes sense. But this is the problem I have with like Devito's direction, where like ev- like everything in the film is heightened. Like it's like. It's just it, it, and it's like the look of things I like. It's colorful and, and odd, but there's times where it's just like it's too, it's like too over the top. And this is kind of, I have like really mixed feelings about his like comedies because I, I do like it, but on the other hand, I'm like, boy, this is just he's going just too much, just too over the top. And that's like another. It, it, in a lot of cases in a script, it should have had like more of like a subtler hand guiding it. And I just, he's just, at times it's just, it's it's too broad, it's too over the top, it's too crazy. It's too much like of a cartoon at at times when it shouldn't have been a cartoon. Getting to DeVito, I mean, DeVito, we haven't really even talked about him, but he is a character in this film. He is Sheldon's agent, eventually kind of becomes like a... His enemy, he's kind of aligned with the uh, the charity that Merv Green is working with and everything. So he's definitely in here. And I think that if I have a complaint about DeVito, and I personally, I think that he's, he's a fairly solid director most of the time, but just that he always feels the need to put himself into his own films. And it's like... I, I know it's got to be tough for the guy. I mean, you know, there probably aren't a whole lot of roles out there for him all yeah. the time. But it's just like, okay, enough. You don't have to be in every single thing. Like, I'm looking at his CV right now, and it's just like, he's kind of usually like the worst part of his own movies a lot of times. Like, his character in Hoffa, I mean, he was okay in Throw Mama from the Train, but I really, I just, I didn't like that film. War of the Roses, I mean, I don't know if anybody else could have played that role, but it was just like, yeah, uh, okay. I, I don't need this Romancing the Stone reunion kind of thing that's going on. I just, I think he would have been better off had he cast someone else 
as that character in Death to Spoochie, spend more time paying attention to the direction rather than having to be in front of the camera as well. His character seems to take on more of a role, and then Jon Stewart kind of gets lost a little bit for me. Like, I think his role should have been beefed up a little bit, and I know that he's in the script a little bit more, uh, the Jon Stewart character. There's this whole subplot that gets cut out for good reason, I kind of think. Like, once Sheldon is off the air... They're looking at yet another host, and they look outside of the U.S. to Japan, where there's this Japanese host, and they want to bring him in. And there's this whole thing where they are going to pay off the, like, almost like the Yakuza or whatever, are going to pay off Jon Stewart's character directly. And I think we kind of get that a little bit earlier in the film, that Stewart isn't that great of a guy in that scene that he has with Rainbow Randolph towards the beginning where he ends up giving him like a charity bag, like a swag bag from whatever event that he went to. And you can tell that those guys were kind of tight. But once Sheldon comes in, the Jon Stewart character kind of drops out for the most part. And I think that the movie would have been better served had they kind of kept his role a little bit bigger and maybe downplayed the Danny DeVito role a little bit. Well, they shot those Tin Pan uh, Takaishi scenes, because they were actually on the DVD, so they were shot, but they were eventually cut out of the movie. How do you think they would have played? Because for me, it felt like they would have just kind of slowed down the action had they actually been in there. No, you're right. In, in fact, even on the DVD, it says that they didn't need to add a third kid show host. In like, uh, I guess it was like uh, towards the end of the second act, and they're right. It, it just slows it down. It's, it's kind of irrelevant, and... But his character was beefed up because he had a deal uh, with that Tin Pan Takayishi character. Yeah, and I think a lot of the stuff that comes out with the way that the John Stewart character interacts with some of these other characters, I think a lot of his exposition ended up going to Vincent Schiavelli as far as when Schiavelli goes and talks to Catherine Keener for a little bit. And there's a couple other like interactions that he has where he kind of drops what he's doing there and all this, and which I actually think is very smart because Schiavelli, you know, he was fantastic, and to me, he was you know a huge loss when we when we lost him from from the planet Earth. No, I don't think it was that much later uh, after Smoochie that he passed, which is sad. Whenever I would see him in the credits of a movie, I knew I was in for a good time. I mean, I've loved that guy ever since like um, one flew of the cuckoo's nest, you know? So I guess it was a little mini cuckoo's nest reunion here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Lane. Yes, sir. This is a bit awkward. Yes, sir. Well, I've heard a few things and, um, well, I was wondering if you would mind if I took out Beth. Yeah, so the film ends with Rainbow Randolph saving Smoochie from the sniper, played by Vincent Chiavelli's character. And this then leads to uh, the big ending of the film, sort of this uh, uh, ice dance and you know friendship song to uh, Higher and Higher. And the idea that they have now sort of merged their two worlds into one kid show is what we're led to believe as the film ends. Which is kind of effective, you know? It's almost like a little bit of the uh, 
the id and the super ego going on. Maybe Catherine Keener is the ego there, you know, the three of them dancing together and everything, because I could see Rainbow Randolph bringing some chaos to the proceedings, which I think kind of needed to be there with Sheldon's show. But yeah, I, um, like I said, I, I think that both of those characters, actually really all three of those characters really kind of come to grips with themselves as they're going through this. And as we've kind of been talking about how this movie is, is going along with the plot and everything, this is really tight. I mean, this is this, the movie is what right around two hours or something, but there's not a whole lot of other stuff other than the stuff that we mentioned, the the Takeshi stuff that you could take out of there because everything really kind of informs the next thing. And there's a lot of stuff going on in this film, a lot of kind of intricate things happening, and I think it's just really, really well written. Oh, absolutely. Hey, I uh, Actually, I got a question for you guys. I, I've always wondered about the ending. Is the ending really happening, or is that just like part of like fantasy? I think it's a fantasy ending, but it might be actually reality, too. And what I mean by that is because if you can be redeemed and get your show back, you can be redeemed again and get your other show back. So, you know what I mean? Because Smoochie falls and he gets his show back. So then what would be the ultimate redemption? Well, saving someone's life. So therefore they're like, well, you know, Rainbow Randolph, not such a bad guy anyway. Let's put him back on the air. But then we got Smoochie, so we have to figure it out. Like I, I could see there would maybe be a scene before this where they figure it out. And then this would be sort of them like this is like this fantasy idea, you know, because obviously they're flying through the air and all of this stuff. Yeah, I was trying to hold real because that would mean they live in a world where people can fly. I and mean, it's something I didn't address. It's just something to throw you at the end. Yeah, I definitely see it as kind of that magical realism, you know, Birdman type thing where it's really the, this is more how the characters are feeling than what's actually going on, you know. So I, I was totally down with them flying around and stuff. I was just like, okay, it expresses how they feel inside and it just goes well with the music and stuff. So I didn't really think they were flying. Um, but at the same time, I didn't necessarily see this as like, you know, Rain Rainbow Randolph waking up and, you know, in a padded room somewhere and being like, damn, you know, I missed my opportunity. Though that might have actually been a good ending. I'd also say that I would rather have them dance and ice skate to this song than have a toaster dance to the song. Henry Rollins audition? Henry Rollins auditioned for the film. Yes, he was uh, up for the role of Spinner. And he gave a rather um, uh, spirited performance when he went in to audition for the role. I can just do it, right? And he's like, anytime you want. I go, so the camera's on, right? He goes, yeah. So I go, okay. And I figure, this is it. I yell, like, Smoochie! Hey! I take a chair in his office and hurl it across the room. <laughs> He and his assistant instinctively duck. A man they've met for 40 seconds has just thrown a chair against a wall. I go running at this woman. She nearly runs out of the room. I bump into a table on my way to her chair. Table falls over. So now we have table over, chair gone. I nearly wipe out a television on his desk. Poor little Danny is running around trying to capture this with digital camera. I make sure to almost back into him all the time. So I'm like, so hey, hey, and there's like, 
and I he's like woo woo and this woman's like and I grab her and I forget the script entirely and I just go my motivation be a psycho who's really happy to see this person and that's all I did and the scene is like 30 seconds I stretched it into an excruciating three minutes of worship and I just made believe I was a five-year-old meeting my super duper favorite child time hero I'm shaking this woman like a rag doll like I love you I love you I finally put her down I'm breathing hard. I'm sweating. She's trembling. Danny DeVito's hiding behind the couch. And he comes out. He's like, okay. Oh, okay. I go, so, you want to do it again? And, and they're like, no, no. I mean, I mean uh, no, no, no. Uh, that, was, that was fine. Uh, so, Henry, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming in. It was a really interesting meeting you and and Danny bravely puts his hand out and I'm like right on man yeah he's like and I go up to the lady god I hope I didn't shake you up too bad are you okay she's like no I'm fine I'm like well good to meet you and she's like "Eh." like all right well good luck with your film knowing I'm never going to see him again thought he was never going to get it and then he was actually running neck and neck with the actor who ended up getting spinner and i think it was like down to the last audition i think this would have been a really interesting turn for henry rollins because most of his characters that he plays are basically henry rollins and this would have been a really different henry rollins i just remember seeing heat when when i was in high school and his line reading of you're gonna deal with them boss was so bad that my friends and I just used to make fun of it constantly. It was just terrible. For me, it's okay, just Johnny. There you go. See, you get uh, Ghostbusters 2 and Johnny Mnemonic in just a matter of two minutes here on the projection booth. It's just amazing. And heat. You know, throwing some Michael Mann for good measure. Oh, okay. So we're going to take a break and play the first of two interviews, one with writer of Death to Smoochie, Adam Resnick, after these brief but important messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know 
that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons. And body counts. Body Count. The Mathematics of Murder and Menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. (laughs) Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. We're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. I wanted to ask you about Death to Smoochie, actually. How did the idea for that one come about? That was just an idea I had. You know, I was thinking about uh, the movie uh, Sweet Smell of Success, you know, with Burt Lancaster and uh, Tony Curtis. 
and it's you know about the cutthroat world of publicists in the 1950s. Classic, great movie. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. What, what about applying that sort of idea to the world of children's television? And I, you know, I, I, I like that idea. And so, you know, I wrote the script, and I was happy with it. But you know, in the film version, I don't think that sweet smell of success feeling really comes through. I can't, you know. But when you that's the thing about writing that goes back to why I wrote the book writing for, for movies or something. <clears throat> if you're going to write something for a uh, pitch an idea to a studio and uh, you want, and they buy it and they pay you to write the script, you go into it knowing what the deal is. They didn't, they didn't give you then complete creative control over it to choose your director and do all this other stuff. It's you, you know, but you get paid for it and you cross your fingers and you hope that the director's vision either matches your, your vision or what happens sometimes, which is great, improves on it, brings their own thing to it that turns it into something even better than you could have imagined in, in, in uh, numbers, which became a movie called lucky numbers. You know, it was pretty far off from what I ever, you know, if you read the script, it just doesn't, doesn't really work for me. It might work for some people. Smoochie, I like more, but still not. The book for me is, is like I said, is, is as good as I could have made it. And so even if people don't like the book, then I, you know, I can't, there's nothing I can say about that because it's on me. I feel good about the book, but you know, with movies, it's different. You, then you, then you're just a whiny writer. I'm saying oh, the script was better. I mean, how many, you know, a lot of writers that say that it's not true necessarily. <laughs> this has happened to be one of the cases that, uh, well, the case of Smoochie, it just, it just came out different enough that it just, I didn't recognize, uh, too much of myself in it anymore, but a lot of, there's some good stuff in there. The performances are great. Edward Norton is, is incredible in it. So, um, but you know, to tell you the truth, I haven't seen that movie since I saw like, you know, two cuts, I saw the, the first rough cut. Then I think I saw close to the final cut. That was, you know, a long time ago, but I've never, I've never watched it since then. So maybe I'd have a different feeling about it if I saw it now. I don't know. What was your involvement with the film once you were kind of done with, uh, I don't know, not the initial draft, but once it was to production, were you involved with it that much after that? Because I know sometimes some writers will be right there the entire time. Others, it's kind of like, you know, they they either step out or are asked to step out. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I'm uh, both in the case of Lucky Numbers and Smoochie. That would have been Nora Ephron and Danny DeVito who directed those movies. They were very um, generous with having me around. For and Nora, you know, allowed me in casting sessions and stuff. I, I didn't have any say really, but you know, she would. If I had a comment or thought, she would listen to that. But then at the end of the day, though, they're the directors. It's their movie. It's not the writer's movie anymore, and they're going to make it the way they want. And you can't really tell. You know, you just hope. Well, Nora was um, for. Uh, Lucky Numbers, or Numbers, as it was titled. Um, I didn't think she was quite right for it. And I think, you know, Nora would have said that probably afterwards. It was, I think she wanted to try something different. It was sort of too dark. And it's not, you know, she excels at something quite different than what that script was. Uh, In the case of Smoochie, you know, I thought Danny might have been a good match because I liked, you know, um, his, well, I liked, um, I liked a lot of Hoffa, you know, and I, I really liked this, uh, Matilda actually is a movie that my daughter was watching at the time. So I became aware of it and I thought, you know, I just thought, plus, you know, he's like a comedy guy. So what he made, whether it was, it's not that I can say it was bad. It was just different, different tone, different kind of feeling. And the script, these scripts, they slip away incrementally. They, they start to like, um, 
from what you with what you originally thought they were, you can't even see this imperceptible sort of uh, chipping away process. But it happens, and it may happen with maybe actors ad libbing, or or maybe or just just the tone, the way they're. It's not so much. It's just done. Let's just say it happens on so many different levels and so many different ways until before you know it, it's changed quite a good deal, you know? And, uh, you know, for Smoochie was written very specifically to have a voiceover and I wrote it with a voiceover and the voiceover informed the rhythm of scenes, the way you, the voiceover ends and the way the scene begins. That was all, I had that really well thought out of what that should feel like. And for example, Danny didn't, one of the first things he did is he, he didn't want to do it with voiceover because he had just done, something with voiceover, which I can't even remember. So, um, and I didn't think about it, you know, at the time he said, so I'm going to take out the voiceover. And, you know, I was like, uh, oh, okay. You know, you're still thrilled that your movie's getting made. You're thinking, eh, it'll be maybe, maybe that's right to take it out. But in retrospect, that was one example of something that I think, uh, for me, just for me, hurt the rhythm a little bit. But, uh, I guess people, you know, and plus look, that movie was known and is pretty much known as a, as a big disaster, as a bomb. But, it seems like everything I do, just about that, even if they're considered that, I always start to hear the people that are, you know, there's a following of people that like the, you know, like Death of Smoochie, I guess, has some people that like the movie, but it's just, to me, it just, it just doesn't quite do it for me. That's all I can say. But, but it has some, has some scenes and stuff that are very funny. Yeah, I read one of the drafts of Smoochie, and by that time, the voiceover had been removed. Who was doing the voiceover for the film? It was just a, it was like a narrator. So it was no one in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was sort of like a, you know, Naked City type of voiceover. I really wanted it to feel, you know, film noir and kind of just, uh, uh, I wanted like that old kind of feeling. I wanted it to feel a little more real, even though it was, it was funny, but uh, it just, you know, it, I don't know. I found it to be kind of just shrill and, and uh, um, overbearing at times, but people, like I said, I should try to watch it again. So maybe I'll, maybe I would think better of it now. And I know there's a lot of people that like it, so who knows? But not my movie. I sold it. I sold it. I got paid. And really, that's the that's the deal you make. That's the end of my involvement. My feature drafts, uh, although I'm better at it now, though, they tend they, they used to tend to be like at least 20 pages too long for a first draft. It was always hard to cut stuff out. And and then it, and a lot of times you didn't want to cut stuff out. Even people were like, how do we keep this in? Like the different subplots and you eventually got a hack. That's why try not to overwrite. It's it's the biggest writer's mistake. It took me a long time to mature out of that, of, of being like, oh, but I don't want to cut this. I don't want to cut that. It's, I think David Mamet said about scenes, you know, you want to you get in late and get out early. And that, that is, it really, less is more. It, it applies to everything, just about. Before DeVito picked it up, was anybody else interested in this? I'm trying to remember. I don't know. Danny was, uh, actually, there were some people it, both that one and numbers had, you know, uh, were people really seemed to like those scripts. So they were floating around for a little bit and getting a lot of good. Uh, there was a good buzz on both of those scripts, but um, I really can't remember. Danny came on pretty soon. I remember being, you know, thinking, "Oh, that's a good choice," because like, especially because Nora, I thought, was sort of not right uh, for. You know, she seemed to be very, a very wrong choice because she just—I've never seen her do a movie like numbers so i didn't know you know i just thought well i know that she's great at the stuff she does and probably she's seen nor always thought she just always just direct what she writes you know i don't i don't think she needed to direct anyone else's script 
And but uh, you know, Danny, I mean, he just wore the roses and stuff. I thought, I think, I thought this, and like I said, I like Matilda a lot, and uh, I thought it would work out. And I don't know, for a lot of people, maybe it does work out. This is just my memory, and I haven't seen it, you know, for well over a decade, so I don't know. Last time we talked, we talked a lot about Cabin Boy and just that whole, you know, the heaping of the hatred onto Cabin Boy. Death to Smoochie, kind of the same story. Why do you think that people are just kind of laying in wait for that film? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that happened again. It didn't happen with the intensity that of, of Cabin Boy, but it was. Uh, um, I don't know, but you know, again, that was part of the thing too. That after you know, Death to Smoochie, it was hard for me to figure out what to write. It was very depressing. Because I liked the script. I liked my script. I thought it was, you know, at least 85% there. And which, you know, when a script goes to a director who you think it will be a great collaborator, it'll be, you know, then usually, but hopefully you want it to get better then. But Smoochie, I felt, you know, didn't, didn't really get better. It went in another direction. And the people... You know, I wasn't thrilled when I saw the first rough cut, but this is, I will say this again, this is the writer talking, <laughs> which it was either the worst person or the best person to have, you know, an opinion on what it was. But it just, it, it, it started off, you know, just immediately, not how I had pictured it. And uh, the performances, though, were pretty great, I thought, you know, by, by, by the people in the movie. But, um, uh, and Edward, it just—I don't know. It was, might have been in the editing. It might have been this or that. I'm not a director myself, so I—you know—who knows? It was—I I, there were some places I thought, oh, this I would have tightened that. I would have made this a little less big. I would have. But Danny went for it. His thing—he made this. It's basically it turned into a movie that just like kicks you in the balls right away, and it doesn't let up. And that's what you know. I think, and that's the movie Danny wanted to make. And maybe that put off some people. It just is not a. It, to me, it didn't feel like it's any a movie that would have you know a, a, a wide appeal, and it was you know look, it was imperfect. You could say that no matter what. It wasn't like this, wasn't uh, you know it just it didn't quite work. Whether you know that's, that's you know what can I say? It was kind of shrill, and I think people got tired of all the screaming. And that might have been in the script too. There's a lot of exclamation marks in that script. But in my mind, when I hear the way someone is yelling or something, it was sort of different than uh, the way I heard it then in the movie. So it's just, it's just one of those things. For a movie to come out great is a miracle. It really is. Anyone that makes a movie that works on any level, that, that's, that's, you know, there was a, a lot, either luck or just so much talent behind it. And it, But it's hard. I have to say, I've never heard the phrase rickita racketa before I saw that film. <laughs> was that, is that something that Smoochie said? I'm trying to remember what that was. Like, or someone was Yeah, talking. that's one of his, uh, you know, I think he says it a few times. Like, you know, let's turn down the rickita rackada. <laughs> yeah, Edward was so funny. He was so, so, uh, he was just great in it. Yeah, that was, uh, so there's, there are whole chunks and through lines that I enjoy about the movie. But. Yeah, I was really surprised the way that Smoochie is portrayed, just that he could be the most annoying character ever written, but he doesn't come off that way. And that was one thing I really appreciated, that he could be made fun of, he could be the butt of all these jokes, but he seems to be genuine and you know, just a nice guy. From the start, Edward was the one, uh, is the person I thought really, um, as, as the star of the movie, he got... He got. I think he was in lockstep with me of of sort of what the movie was. I could just tell he got it, you know, and all his choices were right. Um, but that's yeah, right into the kind of stuff you're saying though. Like he just got all that stuff, and he and and uh, he played it just so great. 
I feel, you know, I try to be always as honest as I can and with a not, not, and not try to, you know, have some political thing where I, um, just sort of, you know, I want to just be honest. I don't want to, you know, tear something down at the same time. I don't want to do this false narrative of how I really feel. And Smoochie, I, you know, I, is a tough one for me. And I, you know, in talking to you, it was the first time that I've had the feeling in all these years I should look at it again because I was just, uh, you know, the fuming writer at the time when I saw those cuts and I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't like it. I liked parts of it, but I didn't, you know, I was upset again. And I knew it wasn't going to do well. I could just tell. And I knew it wasn't even going to forget with a big audience. You know, I didn't think it just, I just knew it didn't work. I know what a good movie is, is you know what a good movie is. And it's just, this was not, this is not like uh, some cool movie that, you know, is just for a handful of cool people. It's an uneven it works, you know, in, in, in sort of like little bursts, it'll, it'll work, but it's, you know, it's fitfully enjoyable. It just, it could have been better, could have been so much better, but I don't want to super disparage, you know, Danny DeVito or anything. I just, uh, I'm just trying to be honest how I feel and not really point blame. Like I said, I was just the writer. <laughs> That's how I have to look at it, you know, but, you know, can you imagine after Cabin Boy, after numbers that I said another time now, I have to go through these fucking reviews i mean you know it was and i'm a depressive as it is it, it was hard to climb out that you know hard to get up off the bat again after smoochie you know but you know what i'm gonna send you because I, I just dug it out the other day i found like if someone else asked me about it i have a an earlier draft that still has the voiceover in it um so uh i'll, I'll send that to you you might find it interesting because the one you have you say it doesn't have the voiceover correct yeah. yeah that's after danny started yanking shit out and everything and i thought hurting the flow the one i send you is a little too long so it might, that it's like 127 pages but you i think you might find it interesting to see some of the other stuff that was in there no, I would love that. I eat that stuff up. Oh, you know, good. when we do these shows, mm-hmm. it's always like I'm trying to read the original book. If there's a book, I try to read the screenplay, the earliest draft I can. So yeah, well, this one that I'm sending you is—I don't think it's ever been out anywhere because um, it's not. I think the main one that got around, even what they call early drafts, are still the ones after Danny took the voiceover out and did some other things. So, uh, so yeah. All right. Well, hey, Mike. Thanks a lot. This is always—I'm always—it's uh, always nice of you to. Uh, ask me to uh, to talk to you so anytime you need anything let me know Thanks to Adam Resnick for coming on the show. Let's play another interview with an actor from Death to Smoochie, Mr. Danny Woodburn. You have been in so many different things. I think of, I imagine the first thing that I saw you in was Seinfeld, though I got to see a lot more of you as Carl the Gnome in Special Unit 2, um, which I really enjoyed. How did you kind of get your start in the business? Uh, well, I grew up um, back east, like I said. I went to uh, Temple University and studied film and theater while I was there. I did a number of uh, shows regionally, uh, both in college and around Philadelphia, and then I did a couple shows in New York theater. And then um, I guess it was, I graduated in 89. I graduated late, but when I graduated, I taught for a little bit a youth group, the Freedom Theater Company, it's like an inner city youth group theater-based sort of organization, and then took that dough and picked up and headed out to L.A. So it sounds like you've kind of always had the theater bug? I really pursued a, like a 
science and math education when I was in school because I, I was going to get into medicine on some level. I even went so far as to apply to Penn State pre-med, and uh, I was accepted. <laughs> and my mother has blocked that out of her memory, the fact that I was accepted to pre-med. And what I keep telling her, I said, no, you kept the acceptance on the refrigerator for three months. And then I told you, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I had a lot of downtime after high school because I had some major uh, surgery on my legs as a kid. And so after high school, I went through probably a year and a half of reconstructive surgery on my legs. Um, and uh, had a lot of time to think about what I really, really wanted to do. And then I applied to Temple, Temple University then. And that's when you decided to kind of pursue the film that's when I said to myself, this is what I want to do is I want to, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with my sort of my love of stand-up comedy. The television was a big babysitter for us because I was a lot of times raised by a single mom uh, until my stepdad came along. So with a single mom in the seventies, you do babysitters a lot of times in television. I don't know. I just, I got the bug in me, but never acknowledged it until I was in my late teens. So when did you start doing the stand-up stuff? I started stand-up in 91, oh no, 1990. I did that for about 18 years. I did a little bit of road, but I was never much of a road comic because by the early 90s, I had started to pick up work in town. Um, my first job was on an episode of Hunter, and then I was I would do some stand-in work too, but uh, the money was too good to leave, so I just, I would do, like, perform five or six nights a week around town, maybe do some one-nighters or a week here, a week there on the road. But I always wanted to be close to town so I could get auditions and get into film or television or whatever. And so by 94, when I hit my first Seinfeld aired in February, I think, of 94, I had just finished a feature. And the Seinfeld, I actually recorded it December of 93. And uh, by the time it aired, I just after that, I just stopped working. So there was no way I was going to take myself out of that, out of that flow, you know. I kept doing stand-up regardless. I did I did do, I, I would do a week in Minnesota or a week in Philadelphia. It's like wherever I might be visiting, I would try to get time there or try to get books there, you know. But, I mean, I, I would not say that I was a road warrior. Like so many of the comics I came up with were road warriors. What was your act like? I did a lot of um, stuff. I didn't do short jokes, per se. I did a lot of stuff about people's perceptions of me and the sort of incorrect perceptions of me. And uh, you can connect on my site, and there's a there's a comedy club there, and there's a, there's a set from a few years back. You can take a look at that. You get a good sense of what I did. So once you got going, once Seinfeld, you started working with them, you just pretty much took off. Have you just been working solid ever since then? Yeah. I, my last day job was in 93, and I was selling cowboy boots. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, got to be the worst choice of job for me on the planet, because I am not remotely close to a cowboy, uh, and nor was I a, a member of that L.A. set that wore cowboy boots as the fashion statement of that era. Because there was a time there where, like, anybody going out to a club was like, I had to have my cowboy boots, you know. It wasn't so much a Western thing as it was like an L.A. hipster thing. But I lasted about three months in that job before getting tendonitis of my Achilles because I was in such agony having to wear the boots all day. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess you would kind of have to show that you believe in the product, huh? Oh, That was 93. I would have been 29. I remember my manager was a 19-year-old kid. He took me aside one day. I had a, I had a, um, I got booked on an episode of Murder, She Wrote, and I said, look, I'm not coming in tomorrow because I'm going to work on this television show as an actor. 
And he said, you know, uh, at the end of the day, today I want to talk to you. And I said, all right. So I go back in the office and he says, look, um, you know, there's a lot of great opportunity here at Deeds Market. That was the name of the food store. A lot of great opportunity here at Deeds Market. And you have to make a decision if you want to pursue this as a career in business or if you want, want to be, you know, do this pipe dream of acting. And I said, um, yeah, let's see. I'm about to do an episode of Murder, She Wrote. It's not like it's a dream. Like, I'm going to go work on the show with Angela Lansbury. So I'm not going to be a boot salesman my whole life. Thank you. Thanks, but no thanks. Right? Thanks, but no thanks. Not only have you done a lot of acting, but then you're, well, it's a form of acting, but you've been doing a lot of voiceover stuff too, right? I've done some, you know, pilots for Nickelodeon or Disney. I've done a few things to them. I did an, I did an American Dad uh, a while back, but... I played um, Craig T. Half Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> I think they cut the character of that episode. But he, uh, Mike Bar- Mike um, Barker's an old uh, comedy buddy uh, from the early '90s. He and I were in a contest together way back when, like probably 1990. I, I beat him in the contest, so I'm hard pressed to try to get Mike to bring me back in for another another episode. But I'll keep at him. I'll keep at him. I'm sure there's no hard feelings. So I, I mentioned Special Unit 2, and right around that time you were in Death to Smoochie. Can you tell me what was that like getting into into that cast? I was in the middle of, of filming the first six episodes of Special Unit because we broke it up. The first season was six episodes, and then the second season was going to start with episode seven. So I was still shooting, and my agent was telling me, this audition has come down. you got to try to meet with Danny DeVito, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm, I'm working. I can't get away. I couldn't get away. So I was never able to audition in L.A. So I said, well, let me put something on tape. And I, by the time I was able to get it on tape, and, uh, and then I shipped it out to New York, because he went out to do New York casting sessions. I shipped it out to him in New York. And by the time it got to New York, he was on a plane back to L.A. And I was like, oh, geez, I'm never going to get in. And then um, finally one, one like early morning, I had free, and he agreed to meet me pretty much last minute. And... I walked in his office, and it was just sort of him and me, you know, and uh, it made me feel really comfortable, and we just sat and we bullshitted for a little while, you know, he cracked some jokes, I cracked some jokes, we had a good good rapport back and forth, and then he goes, I guess we should sort of read this, <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure, let's read it, so I read it, I felt really good about it, and uh, he seemed to make me think that good things were going to happen. And then I think I knew within a couple of days that I was going to go do it. It was very exciting, very exciting. And I got to work with, you know, one of my idols. I mean, besides Danny being an idol, you know, Robin Williams, to get to work with Robin was a huge, exciting sort of, I felt, step in my career. And I know Smoochie was not like a big box office winner, but um, it was a great cult following. People really have picked up on it over the years. And I get a lot of people talking to me about that, this Smoochie, which is really funny. I think domestically it was like six and a half million it, it took in on the initial release, but it, it lives on in this sort of this sort of uh, you know underground world of kookiness that loves this kind of stuff. It's got this great cult following. Right idea, wrong time, maybe I don't know. I think it's just one of those movies that was ahead of its time. It was just too dark, and uh, people couldn't grab it. And Danny's a dark director, dark and funny, and. Uh, I don't know. People just weren't able to grab into it until 
they got older and went, hey, this isn't really a kid's movie, you know? Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if the marketing might have been its downfall a little bit, because I don't remember it being marketed. No, they didn't. It, it, you know, it, it made me fear any movie I was in to be released in March. <laughs> I was just like, from that point on, I was like, oh, no, March release? Oh, shit. You know, but um, yeah, I, I I agree that, that the the run up to it was not was not strong. So you said that working with uh, with what Robin Williams was uh, kind of a dream for you that he was one of your heroes. Was that from when you guys were, was he doing stand up around the same time? I'd never seen him on a stand up circuit. I just knew his stand up as a, as a young as a young guy. He was already you know he was already well established by the time I even met him. Even more by the time I even got into the business. You know, he just had this reputation of being this great improviser, and you know, all of that lived up to the truth at the time. And and uh, it was a thrill for me because Danny would direct the scenes between us, and uh, he would sort of give Robin this free reign to to do things, and then I would have to keep up. And then um, got to the point where I think Danny had a great confidence in me too, and then he would give me that same opportunity. So he said, "All right, Robin, do one for you," and then we would we would run a scene, and then. And then Danny would go, all right, Danny, now do one for you. And then I would run, you know, my own little jokes or ideas that I thought might be funny in the moment. And a couple of my, my one-liners did get in, a couple of my ideas. What made the cut? It's when Buggy Ding Dongs comes to see me and I phone, I phone Robin's character. And I say, you know, that he's come to visit me. And I said, he's jacked up higher than a prom dress in June. What's the one line? And they were like, that's so complex, but so funny. And they left it, which made me thrilled. I guess growing up in the 70s, you were probably right there watching him on uh, Mork and Mindy and all that. Well, yeah, Mork and Mindy. I mean, I'm like, how many people know that he spun off of Happy Days? How many people know that? Other than me? Other than you. I mean, that was his break, really. That that, that couple episodes of Happy Days, it's like one or two that he did as this space alien, and then boom. I was also raised by the cathode ray, and um, the Happy Days was where it was at for me. Happy Days and MASH. Yeah, absolutely. That must have been great. I mean, it's such an amazing cast in that film. I mean, There's no one person in that cast that isn't somebody. You know, I recognize everybody that's in there. It seems like most of your scenes are with Robin Williams in the film. Yeah, we have a lot of one-on-one stuff together, which is great, but I got to, to work and meet Vincent Chiavelli and of course, work with Ed Norton and, you know, the whole run of the show to be hanging out with Danny D. It's just, it was like one of those movies where you like, this is, this is the dream as it's happening, you know? And I'd done maybe two or three other big budget films prior to that, but I felt like this was the one big one, you know? When I like that you, uh, showed your allegiance to Smoochie, you know, that, uh, you weren't backstabbing anybody in that one too. No, I was out for, I was out for me really as a performer. Just trying to get the job. <laughs> there was some cool stuff in there. Like Danny would talk to me. He goes, what do you want in your apartment? You know, it's like my character had his own apartment. So, you know, as a New York theater guy, what do I put in my apartment? So like some of the things that are peppered around there were, you know, thoughts that I'd had that he should have, like, you know, all kinds of musical theater references on the walls and stuff like that. And the, his, the scene where he's cooking spaghetti, uh, Angelo's wearing a Sweeney Todd apron. Which I wish I would have stolen. You know, I still want that right now. And I think I even said I want this apron when we're done. And I I never remembered to go get it. Kind of showed maybe your your background in theater, you know, your character's background in theater in that. Yeah, just sort of questioning, like to the point of like 
Is he straight? Is he gay? Who knows? We really don't know. It doesn't really matter. When you approach a character, how much thought do you usually give to like their backstory? What's your approach when you come into a new role like that? Well, I, I was a real follower of uh, Michael Chekhov method, which, from what I remember, <laughs> it was um, a real focus on what's on the page and pull, pulling everything from the page and letting that be your skeleton and then building on assumptions from what's on the page but not creating so much away from that that it, in my mind, becomes made up. I like to sort of find the big chunks of who, who the person is on the page and then build on those big chunks based on if somebody is a doctor from a certain country, then obviously you get the pull from the culture of the country. You get the pull from uh, your experience with doctors and, and who a doctor is, you know what I mean? So, but it all starts with what's on the page and the dialogue and what's coming out in the words, what's being talked about, what's being said, how it's being said, you know. When it comes to, I mean, you've done, what, 75 roles, I think I counted. What have been some of the favorite ones that you've done over the years? Well, definitely Angelo <laughs> from Smoochie is definitely a favorite. I really like my character uh, and the people I got to work with. Um, I know it wasn't a huge uh, smash, but um, Antoya the Monk, because there was a lot of great comedic actors in that. Tim Bagley, Sean Whalen, uh, Harlan Williams, you know. Uh, Andy Dick, a lot of great comedic people in that, and that character. I like I like playing these sort of like rough hewn, obnoxious bastards, basically. And Carl was certainly uh, one of the top bastards on my list. I like the violent element between uh, Nick and Carl, and especially unit. That was always a lot of fun. Michael Landis and I, yeah, we had a really good rapport, Michael and I. We were always looking for these moments to beat the crap out of each other with a smile. Michael, no matter where he was in the scene, he always had a smile on his face anyway, so it was very easy to get that. It it, it sort of dumbed down the violence to sort of comical, which which made it, you know, you could shoot me with a gun and it was still like, something is okay about this. I don't know what, but it still works. But I almost wish that was like even less serious. I almost wish that was like even more comedic because... I just knew there was times where we were ready to explode in that in that arena. And I know Evan Katz, you know, who went on to do 24, Evan was a big proponent of, like, let's find some funny here. And uh, the other producer and director, John Kretschmer, was uh, is still a good friend, and we've always, we always reminisce about those times. But it was also, it was also very tough because, you know, we were, we were shooting in Canada and 9-11 happened, and, uh, it was a, it, there's a lot of bittersweet that goes with that show. And if I ever see the episode, so it's, they do every now and then they like run a marathon, like straight all, what did we do total? 19. We only got 19 out of it. But they'll run a marathon and I'll see the, I'll see the night that I worked on 9-11. I worked that night actually. They, Paramount had called us all in to work anyway. And, uh, so I watched that night and that's, that's a tough night. As Carl gets Carl gets shot up a lot in that in that episode, and it was it was a very it was a very late shoot after 9/11 had happened. It was very difficult. So, like I said, it was a it was a bittersweet period, and it might have even had a lot to do with the with the whole pulling of it. You know. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, comedy really didn't do too well right after that, if memory serves. Yeah, you know, it took a while for people to sort of get their bearings again. Not and not not into fantasy either. You know what I mean? Not into that. You know, 
into that world. I kind of wonder if that might have also been a little bit of uh, the problem with Smoochie. I mean, because that was, what, well, March yeah, of 2002? March, uh, yeah, because when I remember we went, they still had, we went to the premiere in New York and they had the uh, the lights, you know, the, the eternal lights shooting up from the site that was still essentially, the ground zero was still being explored, still under demolition, excavation, all of that. Six months after 9-11, I'm sure, a yeah. dark comedy about a, a singing rhino, probably. <laughs> but so much about that movie, the costumes, the I mean, the, the ice skating scene, all the, you know, there was a lot of pageantry to it. We did, we did dance numbers. I mean, it was huge. It was an extravaganza. And there was a girl that came, uh, her name is Emily, and she came with the uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation. At the time, she was 11 or 12, I think. I managed to keep in touch with her over the years. I, we would exchange Christmas cards because I, I connected to a lot of the kids on the show. And this girl is, you know, a cancer, struggling with cancer and trying to survive cancer. And she, she beat it as a young girl, gratefully. And so over the years, I've kept in touch with her. Now she's a, she graduated from Temple University. You know, she was from my hometown and, and I'm still in touch with her. So that's kind of a really great memory from that, from that time that this young girl survived and has a whole life do you mind it kind of if I ask the inverse question as far as, you know, I asked you what some of your favorite roles were. Can you tell me some of your least favorite ones? <laughs> least favorite? Um, you know, there are roles, I, I don't necessarily want to single anybody out, but there's roles that I've showed up on and I expected something different. They might have transformed over a period of time into something else and agreements that were made and exchanges. Like I had taken certain roles and with certain stipulations that, this not be done or this or this be addressed in some way. And then, because I felt like it was demeaning if something wasn't addressed. And so I would get these things addressed and shot on the day, but then they don't end up in the final cut. And then you're like, well, that, that was a mistake then because I don't feel like I, I really got my due as the proponent of positive imagery of little people, which is really how I've always sort of pursued my career to not show these sort of derogatory images. And I know I'm all for playing characters that are otherworldly, because any actor would do that. But if I were to play them in a way that I felt was demeaning to me because of my size or use my size in a way that was dehumanizing, I would not do it. And so when when I make an agreement with a production company and they say, yeah, we're going to do it this way, and then they don't, that doesn't become a good memory. To give you an example, I started out on a show once. At the beginning of the week, I was a, uh, a circuit court judge. By the end of the week, I was a I was a nightclub owner and male stripper. So in the course of five days, that's how much the role changed, which wasn't such a bad thing. But, but the stuff that went on around my character, I felt I didn't care for. That singled out my character. What do you see some of the, the negative stereotypes that are still being portrayed in film about little people? Right out of the gate, the idea of referring to little people as midgets on screen in a way that in a way that doesn't acknowledge this is derogatory or acknowledge that this is a dehumanizing word, that upsets me. If they just make it a, a joke or if they turn the character into just a sight gag joke, like somebody popping out of a trunk of a car, you know, you know, and I just just for the sake of they're small and they fit and that's funny, you know what I mean? And they refer to them as a midget in the course of the show then and they don't they don't bring in their humanity. That to me is the is the worst of it. You can be insulting to African Americans on screen, but 
nine times out of ten, there's going to be objection by the character, or there's going to be a portrayal that is of a of a third dimension, as opposed to this sort of, you know, they're not showing up to do this sort of black joke and then leave. You know what I mean? So there's still a lot of that that goes on. There's still a lot of that expectation. You know, I was asked uh, to do a film some time ago, and there's just a lot of derogatory references in it. And I was like, this isn't for me, you know? And they're like, well, well what's the problem? <laughs> it's like, well, if you can't see it, and it's like on every single freaking page, I can't help you. What do you think about the portrayal of little people by big size people, like uh, the uh, the Hobbit films or things like that? I've talked about that in, in the past, and I, I've, I've said, you know, that there, on some level there is there is a likening, and I've gotten a lot of flack for this, but there's a likening to blackface. And I wouldn't say it's the exact same thing, but I would say that there is a sense that you're not going to hire these little people to do these roles. You're going to give them to other performers to portray the people that already exist in the world. And it's the same. The same for me holds true for uh, when they hire people to play characters with disability and don't give the opportunity to characters with disability. And it's not even about, well, we just went for the best actor. It's not about that because a lot of performers with disability don't have equal access to opportunities that allow them to get these roles. And, you know, I'll go on an audition for a character in a wheelchair, okay, which as a person, as a performer with a disability, I feel it's okay. But I want to see other characters there in wheelchairs. I mean, I've been in a wheelchair in my life. I know what that experience is like. I've spent time in that life uh, from all the multiple surgeries I had as a kid. And so, but I'm, I'm less qualified than somebody that lives their life in a wheelchair. But if I show up to one of these auditions and... The audition is on the second floor, and it's only steps to access that audition. That means they're not even considering a performer in a wheelchair or some person with a disability who could have an opportunity to play a person with a disability. That's where I have a problem. When you're you're doing so much CGI and so much effects and so much casting of people who are able-bodied in roles that that involve people with disability, and I know people say, oh, we're just hiring an actor, but you would not say that thing that same thing if you hired an African-American or a white guy to portray an African-American. You wouldn't do that. You just wouldn't do it. What do you feel as far as what are some of the more positive roles that you see or positive portrayals of little people in film? There's not a lot of them, I don't think. I mean, there's, you know, I've done all I can over my 22, 24 years in the business to try to present as many positive portrayals as I could for my work. And I know a couple, a couple other people in the business that have done the same sort of thing or attempted to or at least had opportunity to do it. Maybe they haven't done it their entire lives, but they've had opportunity to do it and they have done it. And of course, Game of Thrones, I watch you know, the English portrayal on that, and that's a, a fine example of, of someone portraying the whole of that kind of character within the realm of that universe. Yeah, you've been pretty open as far as um, your feelings on this and even being in some documentaries about it. Can you tell me about cinema ability? Well, cinema ability is exactly that. It's this sort of exploration of disability in film. Uh, it really takes a chronological, historical look at it and sort of how it's transformed over the years and how we perceive disability um, in society and how it is reflected uh, into the media, reflected into television and film. So you watch shows in the 70s that have somebody who is blind, say, and and that person 
uh, might be portrayed as a sort of angelic, perfect being, but it's not necessarily an accurate portrayal of who a person who has a sight impairment really is in in the world. So we sort of, a lot of times we've taken in the past people with disabilities and put them up on a pedestal, or or we've done the opposite and turned them into villains. You know, there's been many, many films and programs where we see the person with a disability as the extreme villain, but not necessarily this, this balance of, of humanity for the person with a disability, where we see them as that person, not one extreme or the other. Of course, as you say that, I'm thinking of like Wild Wild West and the uh, the antagonist in that one. Yeah, but you know, I I always I always admired Michael Dunn's portrayal because I felt like I felt like there was there was nuance, there was complexity to him, there was soul and meat, and it wasn't so much about poor poor me. You know, he was villainous, um, and he always had a way with the ladies, but he was a sad, tormented soul, and it wasn't necessarily related to his size even though it was the 60s and sometimes they brought that out. But I always felt that that was a, a really great portrayal and I liked watching him and everything he did. And, and a particular favorite, of course, the episode of Star Trek, uh, Plato's Children, I think it's called, with him in it. You know, I'm a super geek when it comes to the original Star Trek. I'm a geek when it comes to a lot of things, but, you know, Star Trek every day of my life as a kid, pretty much knowing every episode backwards and forwards. I could go toe-to-toe with some of the better geeks. Of all the things that you've been in, you've never been in any Star Trek that I know of. Oh, I came close. I came close on uh, on an episode of Deep Space Nine many, many years ago. And I, couldn't, I could tell my, my episode, my audition was going south. I don't know why, but I was just like, I don't know if this is already cast, but she's looking at me like I'm a, like a fish that's been left out on the kitchen counter. So, and then I switched right into a Shatner impression. I was like, I... Just totally sensed it right now because I was just such a like I want to be on this show so bad. I said I could do Kirk. I <laughs> slipped right into it. But I did when I was doing special unit. I did get an opportunity to host a marathon of uh, Next Generation. So I ho- hosted that in the in the San Francisco affiliate in the 2001, uh, actually September 2001, right before 9/11. And uh, I did. Like impressions of all the different captains, and I did. I, I, it was when the um, uh, Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise, was about to air with Scott Bakula, and I spent every every bumper giving Scott Bakula, Captain Kirk, lessons: <laughs> how to drink Romulan ale, how to wipe blood from your mouth. I just, you know, I wish that that tape was out somewhere on YouTube because I'd really like to put it up somewhere. <laughs> you must have the patience of a saint to put up with all the times that you have to be made up like the the Carl makeup and some of the other ones that I can think of yeah Angel was a long day Angel was like a 15 hour day but I really loved working on him I never met Amy Acker outside of makeup like I showed up at like 4.30 in the morning was made up by 7 came to set Amy's already there we worked together for like 12 hours and then I left and went to get my makeup off I'd never seen her and she's never seen me outside of makeup. That's got to be a strange experience. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange. And our first scene was basically, I just knocked her to the ground, and I'm on top of her. Uh, it's a very, like, I was like, I'm trying to be polite, but this is a very sort of awkward, compromising position we're in. So you mentioned earlier that you're always working. What kind of stuff are you working on now? I can't really talk about it, but I did the uh, Kenny Bean Ninja Turtles. Uh, the summer comes out this this summer. Then I play Master Splinter. 
And then I worked on uh, a series, Crash and Bernstein, for the first two seasons. And uh, I don't know if they're coming back, though. That's the only sad thing. Um, that was a Disney XD show where I play another obnoxious foil for a puppet's abuse. I play the superintendent of the building, and, and the family, as part of the family, there's a puppet, and the puppet basically wreaks havoc every day, and I become a large target of that havoc. But that was fun. I got to work with the great kids and enjoyed that for, you know, I don't know, it was about 13 or 14 episodes I did. What, what is this one on your CV called The Identical? Oh, yeah, that's right. I did that last year. We're still waiting for it to come out. That's um, sort of an Elvis story, like if Elvis had a twin kind of a story. It follows this sort of period music uh, of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And um, my character is actually a impersonator of the character in the movie. Because, you know, like Elvis, he has all these impersonators. So I have a scene where I have this, like, heart-to-heart with, uh, with the main character, and then I go up and perform one of his songs. It's very, it was very fun and over the top. I was looking at the cast. The cast, again, looks pretty amazing. Yeah, Ray Liotta, Ashley Judd, Seth Green is in it. I think uh, Joey Pantliano Joy, Joy in it as well. I can't remember. Well, that's great. Are you still doing the stand-up? Um, I have been away from it for a while. I mean, I think I'm working on a revamp, and I want to come back to do it. That's great. Are you big on the uh, the social media stuff? I try to be, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook a lot, my website. Take pictures of your food and put it out on Instagram? Maybe not so much food, but, you know, whatever I can legally put up, I'll try to put up. Thanks to Danny Woodburn for coming on the show. You can find out more about him and also Adam Resnick over on our website, projection-booth.com. As I also mentioned uh, in the lead-up, Adam Resnick was on our Cabin Boy episode, who also featured Mr. Mike Sullivan, who's with us this week. Well, one of the things that Adam Resnick talked about with you, Mike, was that how Death to Smoochie was kind of informed by Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah, which I had never actually seen Sweet Smell of Success, and uh, which I'm kind of ashamed of because it seems like one of those, like, oh, you have to see this movie. So I finally went and checked out Sweet Smell of Success, and oh my god, I always get such a kick out of Burt Lancaster. That staccato delivery that he does, and in that movie, I can definitely see like a lot of the lines that are in Smoochie as far as this kind of more like hard-boiled type of stuff, you know, hit the ground faster than a, a prom queen's dress, like these kind of things. That is all over Sweet Smell of Success, and just that whole like rapid-fire delivery that Burt Lancaster is giving, and... I'm usually not that impressed with Tony Curtis, uh, but he was holding his own with Burt Lancaster in this, and this really gave me a lot more respect for Tony Curtis in this film. Tony Curtis is really good as a slime ball. When he's playing a bad guy, he's really good. The Sweet Cell of Success, that was such an influence over that script. There's a line in the original script where it's, lay down in the gutter, you're a cigarette butt. And it's basically a direct lift of that. And I'm probably going to butcher this. And please correct me because I'm probably wrong. But I swear Lancaster, his first line in the movie is, You're dead, son. Get yourself buried. Sweet Smell of Success was such a strong influence over the original script. I mean, it has that same sort of like, and I mean this in the best way, that snappy like banter in it. It had like that sort of like a Norwich snappy banter. Yeah, I can see that, at least in that. I mean, for me, Sweet Smell of Success has always been one of those favorites that I have. When Criterion put it out on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, I snapped it up 
and just Burt Lancaster is um, just such a presence and such a menace, and you get the feeling that he is this powerful guy. And the, the one thing that I also thought about in reference to Death of Smoochie is not so not even just the dialogue so much in the delivery in that way is just sort of this um, underbelly of things in that the, the the whole point is, for those who haven't seen the film, is that Lancaster is this uh, Walter Winchell type columnist. He's a very important man in New York. And Falco, which is played by um, Tony Curtis, is this press agent who's supposedly a friend of his and he's always trying to get his people placed into his column and he's sort of hitting a rough patch because he Burt Lancaster can't bring himself to do it but he wants him to break up this relationship between his kid sister and this jazz guitarist and he doesn't like the fact that she's dating this guy he thinks he's like below her station and all this so he sort of hires Tony Curtis to go out and and get it done. And until he gets it done, he can't get his things placed in the column. So there's this whole thing about sort of like, um, things appearing to be one way, but they're not. And how people are sort of duplicitous to each other, sit there and smile in each other's face. Oh yeah, of course. You know, I, I love your boyfriend. I think your boyfriend's great. Everything's good. No, actually I can't stand the fucking guy. So there's this, there's this back and forth of how people present to each other in order to scheme sort of behind the scenes. I can really see not just the name J.J. Hunsucker, but I can so much hear this dialogue being used in like Coen Brothers movies too, the the patter and everything. And just that, you're right, the way that there's this kind of like double speak going on and everything, like that early line again with uh, uh, Hunsucker and Sidney Falco where he's got the cigarette and he's just like, match me, Sidney. You know, and it's just, uh, there's so many great little things in there. And like those quick turns of phrase, like I'd, I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. You know, it's like, this is just like, I want to, you can chew on this dialogue and it's fantastic. I was going to say, there's a cookie reference in both films. When I talked to him about Destin Smoochie, I remember him talking about how he wanted to have more like a, a, a noirish aspect to it, like uh, as it was in Sweet Smell of Success. And I think he, he wanted to make it a period piece. I know there was like he was originally considering uh, having it, Destin Smoochie, and I kind of wish this was the, uh, the, you know, the movie, because I, I actually like this idea a little bit more, where it was going to be a rivalry between two kid shows, uh, like kind of like a Howdy Doody and like Rudy Kazooty type thing. And I know he wanted to make it like a period piece, and I, I think it would have worked a lot better, you know, if it was like almost like the woman chaser, you know, where it was like shot in black and white. It was like this 50s thing. I, I think it would have been an amazing film. Yeah, I can totally see that. And that, in that draft that uh, Resnick sent over, having that voiceover, I think, worked really effectively, too. And especially depending on who you got to do the voiceover. Of course, I'm thinking of like freaking Lionel Stander in my head as I'm reading it, you know, just that gravelly delivery. So I was uh, very much on board with that. I think by eliminating the voiceover, because you already have like the flashback uh, structure there with the death of Moochie, and you think that your main character is going to die and everything, and then they pick it up just at the right time and everything as far as when the story moves forward after that. But yeah, I, I can definitely see had this been a little darker I would have loved it even more, but as it is, I, I, it's effective for what it is, but I think had it been darker and had it had that voiceover that it would have played even better. And especially that idea that you were saying as far as setting it in the 50s and having this more black and white and 
you know, th- having this this cutthroat world back then, I think would have been really kind of cool. And there's a lot of sort of, you know, connections to that when you think about it. I mean, when you look at it through the lens of having that knowledge, I don't really think it was there when I saw it the first time or even until you told me from the interview, Sweet Smell of Success. And I thought about it and I go, yeah, I kind of see maybe noirish aspects. I mean, like when Jon Stewart's character and Randolph meet, they meet like down at the docks. There's the gangsters. There's like there's all of these little sort of touches to uh, to that world, although it doesn't sort of immerse itself heavy in it. It just sort of happens to be swirling around them. Well, in that whole thing, too, where it's like, you know, we've got this promise to Boogie Ding Dong that once he kills the rhino, then he'll be able to have his show back and or get onto television and everything. It's just that whole idea of like all these different promises that you're making to these different people. Like, if you do this for me, then this guy will do that thing for you and all this kind of stuff. That's so going on with Sweet Smell of Success as far as like, no, Sydney, you have to do this. And then my sister's going to think this. And then this guy's going to do that and then this column's going to come out and this will happen and who's telling what lies to who and just keeping this all straight is very much you know the that web is in there with smoochie especially towards that the end of that third act there's one thing i just want to say that i, I wish was in the the film uh, that's in the original script there's a scene where um harvey firestein is in it is in like a dark alley and he's he's, he's beating up a guy in a peter pan costume as like a woman looks on in horror and I that's a scene I really wish would have made it into the film because it is it is it is amazing. It is wonderful. That is so funny. It's so dark and it's so odd. I love it. I have to say though, the the death of his character is pulled off very good um in the final film. I I wish that the Peter Pan thing had been there as well, but I was very impressed by the way that they shot the uh, decapitation <laughs> of Merv Green. So good. All right, we're going to take another break and play preview for next week's show. This is Charlie Arglis, the most talented mob lawyer in all of Kansas. Did I mention to you that I really wish you wouldn't do that? Yeah. I'm going to break his fingers. As an attorney, I advise you to cease and desist. I'm almost done. If you are what you do, and you never do anything, then, you know, what are you? Our finest gifts we bring for... How much? $2,147,000. Anybody but a lawyer would consider the consequences. Does this mean you're rich, Charlie? Because if you are, we could run away together. It is a thought. Leaving Wichita? Damn right, it's a thought. I should be home in Kansas City watching my kids open their Christmas presents. Now I gotta waste the whole day looking for that nitwit. Have you seen Charlie tonight? No. You just missed him. Maybe we should leave now. In case you haven't noticed, there's a hockey rink out there. Boy, I didn't realize how slippery that was. You going somewhere, Mr. Argust? No. That guy you thought might be looking for you? He is. Just act normal for a few hours and we're home free. When I use the word normal, I think I scrape my tummy. If we're understanding it the same way, don't talk. Hurry up. Oh. Yeah, oh. You don't have to have any bullets for this, Dan. Everybody has regrets. You're in love with me. I've always liked you. Mr. Argus? Ouch, that had to hurt. Oh, yeah, I sure did. If you 
you, Argus? Drop the gun. You ever notice how weird people get this time of year? Christmas. Everybody's nice on Christmas. Only morons are nice at Christmas. What's that, Roy? Damn, I took his gun. Guess he must have another one. Must have. When I get out of here, I'm going to kill you. That's right. We're going to get a little no Ari next week. I guess maybe even more so than Death the Smoochie as we talk about Harold Ramis's The Ice Harvest. We'll be joined by the author of the novel, Scott Phillips. So don't miss it. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guests, Adam Resnick and Danny Woodburn, and our special guest co-host, Mike Sullivan, who's never been banned from the projection booth. What's the latest with you, sir? Well, uh, when this goes to air, you can find me in Shock Cinema. I'll be reviewing three movies. And then I'll, I think the month later I may be in Cinema Sewer or something. I don't know. But uh, I'm also kind of like a smoochie myself in that I uh, work for a minor league baseball Team and I'm their mascot, so I, I know inside that world fairly well. What is your character? Oh, it's like uh, it's like sort of like a, like a like a blue bear thing, like from outer space. Kind of reminds me of The Simpsons. The uh... yeah, oddball. Yeah, it's kind of like that. What kind of uh, antics do you do while you're dressed up, Mike? Well, I can kind of do the uh, the Beyonce uh, single ladies dance in the suits. Uh, the thing has like a big ass, so I like shake the big ass around. You better be careful. Somebody might take a picture and you break the internet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's timely. Yeah. So is that what you do for your day job? Well, I, I freelance, too. I'm a freelance writer. It's, I, I, yeah, I, got, I work two jobs. I was really hoping that you were able to make a living from being the uh, the blue bear from outer space. I wish I would, too. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks again, Mike. We'll have links over to where people can find out more about Death of Smoochie and all that good stuff at our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to see what we have coming up, visit our Facebook page or download our free app for your smartphone or your Kindle Fire. It is free. And remember, the Projection Booth is gluten-free, organic goodness without sugar and packed with electrolytes.
Cholito lindo te 